to Innovating Humanity, the official podcast for Birmingham Tech. I'm Jude Jennison, the host of this podcast, and I'm the founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I work with senior leadership teams to help them align through behavioural change. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the intersection between technology, humanity and leadership and looking at how we use technology to be more human and increase emotional connection and enhance the way that we live and work. I'll be interviewing leaders from technology businesses who are at the forefront of changing how we live and work. You will not want to miss this. Some of the conversations have been enlightening and inspiring and I hope you enjoy them as much as I have done. Ferdi Alder and Margaret Ann Coyle are the co-founders of Spice Startups, a business giving tech startups and scale-ups that secret spice to grow, scale and reach new heights. They have a wealth of knowledge and experience of what it takes to be successful as a startup in the tech sector and explain why leadership is often seen as fluffy by tech founders. Despite this, they have some great examples of businesses who have succeeded as a result of their outstanding leadership. Have a listen. Hi, Purdy. Hi, Margaret Ann. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Thanks for having us on. Can you tell us who you are, what you're doing, and why uh, technology and leadership is of interest to you? Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Purdy. I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called Spy Startups. Um, we are, well, Margaret Ann will talk a bit more about what Spice Startups do, but I've been working in the technology ecosystem for the past six years. I worked for a st- scaling tech company, um, I've, and then since then I've been helping startups to grow their businesses, access funding, access customers, um, and provide them with useful contacts that are going to be of interest to them, which is how we came up with Spice Startups. Um, I'm Margaret Ann. I'm the other half of Spice Startups. I'm co-founder and COO. So before starting Spice, um, Purdy and I have worked meeting, uh, met working in the industry. Um, in We are with tech startups in London. Uh, a little bit of background on me. I moved to London when I was 20. Um, I was just studying computer science in the US. And then when I moved here, I switched to a business entrepreneurship focus um, for my studies. So I got into the startup tech scene that way. It was really at the intersection between, you know, two passions of mine, uh, business and tech. So uh, it was it was a natural fit. And once I started working in the industry here in London, I just absolutely loved it. Uh, when Purdy and I were working uh, prior to starting Spice, we just found that being able to work every day with so many different startups and understand what they were going through, different challenges, different opportunities, what helped, you know, what made one startup succeed and the other one not. Uh, we just, yeah, we, we absolutely loved it. So uh, about two months ago, one month ago, time, time has just been so strange this year. So I think, I think it's about six weeks ago, we've, we founded uh, Spice Startups. And so what we're doing with Spice is, um, so we kind of had two different aspects of the business. One of them is something where we have coined as accelerators as a service. I'll let you work out what that acronym is. It wasn't our first choice, but it is essentially a way for us to help companies that service tech startups. So these are places like 
co-working spaces or B2B SaaS companies whose products are used by startups. Um, so we create custom accelerators for them, which, which uh, helps those companies offer their customers, the startups, a really unique kind of growth program that is tailored specifically to the type of startups they service. And so we'll do things like investor intros, uh, networking sessions, getting them ready for investment, and then helping them with, uh, yeah, the different, uh, face the different roadblocks that a lot of them uh, often go through. And it's great because when we're working with such a large pool of startups, we can crowdsource and pull in so many different outside resources to help them grow. So it's, it's been very, very exciting. And then the other half of our business, which we'll be launching, uh, we were initially planning to launch with this first. Now we'll probably start it in about 12 months or so. It's going to be a cohort for first-time founders. So we're going to be looking to create our own incubator slash accelerator for founders who are coming from uh, areas of domains and uh, industries that have been disrupted uh, because of COVID. So these will be people with, you know, 10 to 15 years of specific sector knowledge. And now they're looking to become a founder for the first time. So that's when we'll step in and help them um, kind of be the, the startup brain to their uh, industry brain, so to speak. And so we'll be helping getting those founders up and running. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's one thing to um, it's one thing to have an idea for a startup, isn't it? It's it's quite another to actually execute it. And and the other thing I'm hearing as well, and and I t totally resonate with this because I spent 17 years working for IBM and then set up my own business. And actually, the skills that you need to run your own business and your own startup are vastly different. Yeah. And, and of course, you can draw on the experience of of 17 years of you know, corporate experience, where, wherever that is, but it, it, but it is vastly different. What are some of the leadership challenges that you're finding that are common in, in startups? Well, as kind of as Margaret Ann said, when we were working in our previous role, so we had 400 businesses um, that were based inside kind of one incubation space, and all of them were had completely different backgrounds some of them were second time founders but but not many of them like less than 10 percent so a lot of these people were doing it for the first time um we were working with technology startups in particular so the breakdown um, of the background of the startups about 50 percent of them were technical founders and about 50 percent of them were non-technical founders so the technical founders obviously they knew how to code they knew how to build their product um, but they were very technically minded, so they would never have necessarily run a team before. Um, they'd never kind of done anything commercial before, so they wouldn't know how to price the product. They wouldn't know how to sell the product. They wouldn't know how to market the product. Um, so they needed loads of kind of business support and help, um, which is where leadership, training, management, hiring practices, all of that kind of stuff comes in because all of a sudden you're responsible for a team of people and you might have never done that before um but you've got this really cool product but then you have to you have to have a vision and, and you have to figure out how to keep people motivated and there's a there's a whole whole wealth of information that you need to help you actually figure out how to turn your product into a business and then the other half of the founders the non-technical founders mostly had come from industry so they were really aware of the problem uh, and they were aware of how their solution help with that problem and they knew their customer 
um, but they didn't necessarily have any technical skills, so they needed to get in tech people fast. They needed to figure out how to communicate with tech people because they kind of speak a different language, um, manage them. Um, and then again, they might not have any commercial experience necessarily. So they know the problem, they know the solution, they know their customer, but how, again, how do they price that? Um, are they going to go for investment? How do they get investors on board? How do they manage a team if they've not done that before? How do they hire for diversity? How do they, you know, so there's, there's still a whole load of skills that all of a sudden they need to do because as soon as you're a founder, you're not just wearing your, your one hat of, I work in product at a company, you're, you are everything. You're the HR person, you're the finance person, you're, the, you're, you're responsible for hiring, you're responsible for getting investment, you have to be the person with the vision. So um, being surrounded by 400 of those people going through those challenges for three years for me, two years for Margaret Anne, we really started to get a feel for some of the common questions that people have, some of the pitfalls, um, some of the support that they need. And so when we were coming up with, with our idea for Spice Startups and what we're going to do, it's all about those, how do you help people tackle those so that they're going to have the best chances of being successful and what people in the ecosystem can we introduce to that can help them with those challenges. So we're not saying that we're the experts, but we know who the experts are and we can match them with, the, with those people. And are, are there are there specific issues? I mean, obviously, there's the there's the the one around that, that you've just explained around technical versus industry experience. Mm. Are there um, are there specific leadership skills that are lacking or that are needed? And and do you think people understand that when they first start up a company? Do they realise what's actually expected, or do, or is all the focus on I've got this whizzy new whatever that can meet this particular need in the market and then forget that actually it's all about the execution. I don't think that uh, leadership is probably one of the first or even maybe top five, top 10 things that come to mind when founders are first starting a company because, you know, truthfully, if they don't have a product and a product that can sell, they won't even have a team to lead. So I do understand their primary focus on growth and execution and uh, you know, bringing that product to market as fast as possible. However, the flip side of that is, sure, now you've got a product, but if you don't have a team and if you don't have a team that can function well, that can execute, your product is going to you know, fizzle out. So it is a really difficult balance to strike. The other half of it is from, from my experience and from what I've seen is that there's not one set universal code of leadership that helps every startup thrive. You know, you have to, founders need to find their leadership style that matches their personality and their belief in, you know, the ethos of their company, of, of what they want for their company. Um, and they can't, you know, you see a lot of people who try to copy, uh, you know, Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg and the social network and, kind of honestly end up just becoming an asshole. Sorry, I don't know if I'm watching there now. Um, and that's just totally unnecessary. Uh, and so I think it's, I think it would be, it's really fantastic the more uh, images of successful, kind, focused, driven um, entrepreneurs that we have out there. So people will understand that they don't need to act like, you know, they don't need to put on a front like that just in order to seem, to seem successful. And I would say, um, I think Purdy would agree on this, that we've met 
from, from this role and from a prior role, we've done a lot of uh, VIP and high profile speaker events and have met a lot of, uh, you know, the top, top entrepreneurs out there. And we found that a lot of the people who are at, you know, the very, very top are incredibly nice and like very, uh, you know, personable, not to no large egos whatsoever, but I think it's kind of like that up and coming entrepreneur image that we all have in our mind where people think that their leadership style needs to be extremely cutthroat. Um, and it's just, it's just not true. It's we such an old fashioned, sorry, Purdy, it's such an old fashioned way of thinking, isn't it? That you've got to be cutthroat to win in the, in the market. Yeah. Absolutely. I was just going to say that um, we actually know for a fact that people don't value leadership skills because when we in our in our previous role we used to put on um so we, we ran about 200 events a year for the for the 400 businesses that were based in the space and so maybe once a quarter or so we would do, we would literally run workshops on leadership skills and nobody would bother showing up to the workshops so whereas everybody would come to the workshop on you know investment readiness um or to, to to meet investors or so so i think they we kind of said that, that there are things that people consider to be fluffy um and they they think they're kind of a nice to have and then there's the things that are business critical and the founders put leadership in the nice to have box which is wrong but they they see those kinds of sessions are, as a bit like not business critical. If something comes up, you know, if I've got a sales call, that will always take priority. Yeah. yeah. And do you think do you think that changes as as those startups then start to scale up and start to become more successful? Do you think they start to make the shift then, or or is there is there a genuinely genuine concern here that actually in in the tech startups we're not paying enough attention to how we lead the people? I think it's very difficult for there to be a um, specific, it, I think it's difficult to find the, uh, the, the, like the indicator that there's a problem with leadership because when there are issues in the company, it's easy to say, well, this is a result of, you know, one specific person or HR issues or specific pro uh, product problem or communication problems versus boiling it, whatever the problem is, down to an actual leadership issue is difficult, which makes it easy for people to put off, put in the back burner and think, well, uh, you know, I have a growing team, I have a growing product, so uh, everything's okay here. So yeah, that's a, that's a, there's a critical point where, so, so when we speak to founders, they say that there's two uh, points where your company massively changes. And it's normally when you go, kind of your team size goes from about five or six people to about 15 people. And yeah. then when you go from 30 or so people and you're scaling up to 50, and normally you've got a founding team and everybody, the founding team is really behind the, the, the business or the, or the product because it will be co-founders and the first people that they hire, you know, really, um, really behind it, really believe in it, might not even be earning any money. They've, they've just got a stake in the company all of the information is in their head. And then all of a sudden it goes from kind of five, six people to 15 people. You have to start writing things down and have yeah. to communicate your vision all of a sudden to these other people. Um, but you still know all of them, you know their names, you know everything about them. You can socialize in one group because you're small enough. And then all of a sudden you scale again and there's about 50, 60 people. Um, and then you've got line managers involved and there's all these layers and 
then you have to be able to communicate really clearly what you're trying to do and how you're going to get there. And you have to have those people believe in your vision. And that's when, that's when people start having, you know, leadership issues, I guess. That's when all of a sudden they'll bring someone in because they'll be like, I've got all of these people. They weren't here from the beginning. They don't know everything that's in my head. How, how do I make sure that they're motivated? Like then, you know, recruitment is really important. You're competing with all of the other startups and all the other big tech players. Retention is really important because it costs so much money to hire people. You know, you still want people to work hard. So then, then that's, I think that's when people start realizing that it's important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I worked with, um, I worked with an organization a few years ago who they were, they were a management buyout and they, they were a team of, 15 I think and one of the things that the CEO suddenly realized when he worked with me was that if somebody wasn't doing what he wanted them to do he fired them (laughs) and and he had and you know and he was one of the nicest people you could ever wish to meet and just a, a brilliant leader in so many other ways but his view was if you're not doing what I need you to do I'm a small business I can't afford to keep you so you need to go and yeah. so of course he was churning over lots of people without even realizing it because it was just something that he did. Yeah. And, and actually once he realized that he could work with the people, but it takes a bit more effort, but it's cheaper. Mm. And that actually if you work with the people and you, you know, you refine some of the rough edges. And of course the issue is never one person, even though we often scapegoat one person in the team it's never one person's fault. It's, it's always, it always comes down to the whole team and how they communicate and how they, how they deal with somebody who has a different perspective. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's so much there around diversity and how we include differences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What, what are your, what examples have you got of where somebody's done it really well, where somebody has been a really exceptional leader and has really moved their business forward? Have you got examples of that? I mean, the one that kind of jumps to, to the front of my mind would be Dame Stephanie Shirley, because she, so she has written a couple of books. She has an insane backstory, um, but she was a, a kind of pioneer in the technology industry who her business was running in like the 60s and 70s, I believe. And she was one of the first people that hired women more so than men. She actually had to when the uh, the law changed that you had to, you couldn't be um, you had to hire other genders. She had to hire men rather than having to hire women because she had so many women. But she um, really empathised with her workforce. She understood that if you want to give women jobs in technology at the time, you know you had to you had to emphasise with the fact that they might be looking after children. So she was one of the first people that had her employees working from home, um, and going through going through some of those those things with the team um, and she led the team they, they IPO'd I believe and the team all had skin in the game so they all had share options they all won together and they they genuinely were all part of a team and I think the fact that she had great empathy she had an amazing vision she communicated it well she had great empathy for the people who were following her her lead and they all had skin in the game, which means that when they, when they won, they genuinely did all win together, meant that they worked hard. And I think that's what made her such an amazing leader was that kind of empathy for the people. 
um, and what that meant she was able to to give them because if you, you if you put yourself in someone's shoes and you realize what you would want from them or what you would want if somebody was leading you then you know that like someone will think oh I would love to work here but I've got I've got to pick up my children at a certain time and therefore like I'm going to need to be home and I don't want that becoming an issue and sometimes they're going to be ill and sometimes there's going to be noise in the background if I'm picking up the phone how do we get around that and um, yeah so I think she was probably of all the people that we've ever spoken to the most inspired leader inspirational leader for me and there's nothing there's nothing fluffy about that is there I mean you, you know what I'm hearing is that she had great clarity of vision and great empathy yeah. and set the business up so that everybody had skin in the game which yeah <clears throat> yes yes there's empathy that then it creates collaboration and it creates a desire to succeed together rather than against each other I mean there's there's just nothing fluffy about that at all is there no exactly and any anyone that I think me and Margaret Ann share the same opinion that having skin in the game is really important and when we start hiring people with spice we want to make sure that they've got share options because then then you're all in it together uh, but she did other things too you know she made sure that everybody had a voice um and it was kind of democratic and it wasn't just whatever she says goes that she hired people around her that she knew had skills in different areas and she was humble and human. And, and so just, just basically everything she did was amazing. I think. I mean, what, what you're speaking to there as well is, is what I'm really passionate about, which is being more human yeah. in, a, in a world of technology. And, mm. and, you know, and that brings me on to, how do we use technology in a way that enables us to do that? Because what, again, what I heard from her was that she uh, encouraged people to do remote working so that they could balance childcare. I mean, we've got incredible technology and we've proved in through, through COVID-19 that actually we can all do remote working. I mean, it's not necessarily what we all want to do long-term and, and it's not maybe sustainable or long-term because it, it creates its own, its own issues but in terms of having a balance there how how do you think we can use technology in a way that is a source for good in the world and that can generate more more care for humanity i think there's there, i think there's two sides of that it's one what can companies do to make sure the technology they're producing is net positive to the world and then the flip side of that is what can you as a consumer do to make sure that the technology you're using serves you so the first point what can companies do um you know you have uh, depending on the product you're you're creating there's potentially a lot of moral issues around it and i think um there's certain companies right now that probably come to all of our minds when we think about that. And so it's, it's very interesting seeing the shift from, you know, these products, you know, Facebook, for instance, or, or TikTok, that when people, when they first created, people thought were so exciting and, you know, they created so many business opportunities for people and allowed a lot of people to become entrepreneurs and to advertise so cheaply on Facebook and get customers and grow and make money and support themselves, which is fantastic. But then the flip side of that is, you know what? Um, what are the what are the larger impacts to society? Is it really beneficial to us? We don't really know what it does to all of our brains when we're we're you know consuming so much content all day long. We have no sort of like long term studies on that. 
So I do, I do think that companies do have a uh, obligation to think about the long-term effects on their customers when they're consuming the products that they create. But on the other side, it's like as a customer or as a consumer, you have to understand who you are and you have to understand what's good for you and what's not. So I don't think, you know, Instagram is to blame for people spending so much time on these platforms or for posting weird content or, you know, content that is labeled as, uh, you know, provocative or bad or whatever. It's not the platform itself. It's just amplifying problems that already existed in society. So you need to understand that if you're someone who is particularly prone to, you know, doing things to get, uh, attention or to be viewed in a certain way, then it's your job to make sure that you're using the platform in a way to, to serve you. So you can't always blame the product. You have to, I think, accept some responsibility for the relationship that you have with, you know, whatever you choose to spend a lot of time on. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's true. I think it, it's a, it's two sided, isn't it? Um, what I'm wondering is with the startups that you're working with, do they have an appreciation for the potential of where, when they're creating something, do they have an appreciation for where that might take it? Because I think, you know, Facebook is, is vastly different now from what it was 10 years ago, or I can't remember when it was founded, but mm. um, it, it's, it's a vastly different beast and, and has responded based on, you know, partly on consumer demand and then also partly on the desire to capitalize on that. How do you ensure that technology startups recognize that their vision as they start something may turn into something very different? I think the scary thing with that is that, uh, so if um, people have seen The Social Dilemma, which is an interesting documentary uh, on Netflix, it becomes obvious when, pe- when the, the people that are interviewed are talking is that this advertising model is one of the things that switched Facebook into being this social connector of people to the people becoming the product and all of a sudden you're being sold to all, all of the time. And one of the, um, I think one of the scary things about technology startups is that when they're thinking about monetizing the business, the advertising model is something that people jump to straight away. It's quite attractive. It's easy to, um, it's kind of easy to put into your business model. If you've got a platform and you want people to start um, engaging with your content, having a few banners at the top, you know, adding some ads um, is a great way to just make money off it straight away when you're thinking about other business models, um, which is scary because you can, you can see why people do it when you're talking to businesses because they need to make money and they need to validate that this business is going to be successful. But you can also see how potentially damaging that is because with Facebook, it ended up becoming, you know, getting to this fake news and, and information being pushed to vulnerable people. Um, and then all of a sudden they don't necessarily understand, you know, what's the truth and what's fake and, you know, you know, that that's what started this whole kind of social dilemma and how much responsibility does the platform have for that versus the people that might be creating content and using that platform to push out their ads or, or whatever. Um, so I think it, it's, it's making founders aware. And I think the people that spoke at Facebook, they knew um, that they were going to do this advertising model, but they didn't know at the time. Um, that when they're pushing out content and trying to keep users engaged with the platform, that it was going to go this way. Um, So it's making people aware of their their responsibility, I think. And 
what could happen if you do this. But I don't, I don't necessarily know how you solve that problem. Well, I think it's the, the awareness as a starting point, mm. isn't it, in yeah. terms of getting people to recognise that when they are a tech startup, that actually that they have a responsibility of the impact on society of that. Because I think it's very easy to see a tech startup as a, a very easy money-making machine. And of course, there is no such thing. Mm. Um, but actually, I think people can get caught up in that, in believing that unless they are creating a tech startup, they're not going to get investment and and that unless they're doing it in a particular way, it's not going to make money. Yeah. How do, how do you think we need to use technology in a way that enables us to be more human? I know that's a massive question, <laughs> but what are your, what are your initial thoughts on that? I don't think that, I don't think that technology should be the be all and end all. Um, and so I think, and we were speaking a bit earlier before about this, um, this man, Stephen, that I was going to introduce you to, who's got this company, uh, which is actually a technology platform, but it, it gets people to connect. Um, so you can connect with people that you might never have connected with in your personal physical life as you're just going about your day. Um, and then as soon as you've connected, then that's it. You need to, you need to meet in person and you need to try and try and create more, more kind of physical relationships. Um, I've also, there's a dating site that I, I follow, which is called Thursday, where you can, you, it only works on a Thursday. Um, so rather than having this um, obsession or like, you know, constantly going on a platform and swiping and you're not, you, you, like the point, the problem with Tinder, as everybody says, is that you, they don't want you to actually meet someone because they want you to stay on their platform. So their, their goal is that you fail on your mission because that's how they make money is that they have people and those people are buying various add-ons and stuff on their, their freemium model. Um, and so this guy actually tried to create a dating site which uses technology, but then it gets everybody together in one room. Um, and then you have the physical connection again. So is there a way that you can use technology to get people off of technology and interacting with each with people that they wouldn't normally be interacting with is there is there something in that to make it a, a force for good there's obviously there's this whole tech for good angle as well which we can talk about some examples of of founders that are using technology genuinely for good so give, give me some give me some examples for that as well then um, so we run a we run a, a cohort for a diverse group of founders and for example there's there's a woman who was running a business called Safe in the City where um, businesses or buildings could mark themselves as like a safe zone and they go through training um, and they, they might be businesses that are open 24-7 so we were one of them for her um, and if someone is feeling uh, like you know there might be someone following them or they're not feeling very safe um, they can open this app in their phone, identify one of these safe places, and they can literally walk into that building and there'll be someone in the building, security guard or something that is trained and they can just go in and that person will just let them sit there for a little bit, you know, chat to them, make sure that they're happy and comfortable. And then they can kind of go back out in the world or an Uber, whatever it is that they want to do next. So they can use, they can use their app to make, to make sure that they can get to places where they feel safe if they're not feeling safe. We also See, I love that. I love that because that is such a great example, isn't it, of how we use technology as a as a force for good, so that 
so that we can be more human. I, you know, I totally, I totally get that. I also really enjoyed the, um, the, the example of Thursday. Um, mm. I'm not going to check it out because I've been married for 29 <laughs> years. So I don't think that would be a good idea, but, <laughs> but, but I'm really intrigued by the idea of that, which is, it's about, again, it's about using technology to enhance our lives and, and isn't that really what what we want to be what we want to be using it for is to to enhance the way that we live and work rather than making it worse yeah I, yeah that makes a lot of sense uh the other area i think that would substantially help with people focusing on creating technology that's better for society is um you know what sort of things incentivize startups to go after and chase certain ideas in the first place i think a lot of it has to do with funding and so if you look at VC firms who have a really strong focus on seeing that return on investment in five to seven years, well, it's really difficult to tackle a very, uh, you know, substantial societal problem in five to seven years and see a big return on that. So I think a lot of these funding uh, cycles incentivize addressing problems where you can, you know, spend six months to a year developing a product launch spend a ton of money on facebook and google advertising i think it's something like it's almost like 70 or 80 percent of every uh venture capital dollar ends up going back to google facebook and one other company i mean it's just a mind-blowing statistic but it's like when you have a system like that it's really difficult to get people to want to tackle these large societal issues that we're facing like education or, um, you know, creating internet access for everybody or something to do with the environment or healthcare. So I would love to see more shifts in uh, venture capital where people are willing to write large checks and then know that they're not going to see a potential return on investment for a much longer, uh, a much longer cycle as well. I think that would do a lot for founders to shift their focus from short-term growth over everything to tackling these like larger problems where they're more difficult to win but if you do win there's so much money to be made while obviously helping society as a whole yeah and i think that's a i think that's such an important point and we haven't really touched too much we've, we've run out of time today so maybe maybe that's for a for another day to to look at where money comes into the whole piece around technology and humanity Mm -hmm. um one final tip from each of you on what should what should a, a startup be considering from a leadership point of view my tip i mean i and i think there's there's leadership from a uh, startup perspective and then there's the leaders that we have you know in government which everybody has opinions on especially during covid and crisis and how how leaders respond in crisis um, and one thing that I would love as a person that's affected by, you know, the leadership of someone, um, I think you have to, uh, empathy is, is super important, but I think communication, like, I think if once you know what it is that your vision is, you have to be able to communicate it clearly and consistently the whole time. So people know where they're at. Um, and when you're communicating it, you have to be honest because you have to build trust so that would be my tip. Right. Thanks, Purdy. What about you, Margaret? Ann? I would say, yeah, transparency and communication. You can't sacrifice clarity for kindness. It's not, you know, it's not a popularity contest. You don't want to, 
you don't want to go too far in either direction. You don't want to be overly nice and just try to be liked by everybody. Um, and you also don't want to be a jerk either. So you need to uh, you build up trust with your employees by being extremely transparent and people always understanding that if there's a difficult truth to be told, you're comfortable enough saying that and you're going to do that with empathy and with compassion, but um, you know, communication and leadership with conviction as well. Brilliant. Thank you. You've just, you've just summed up um, basically my, my life's work, which is, which is about how we find that balance between providing the, the clarity of vision and clarity of direction with the building the relationships so that you can execute through the relationship rather than in spite of it. So mm-hmm. thank you, Purdy and Margaret, and for your time. It's been fantastic to talk to you today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I loved Purdy's example of Thursday, the online dating app that can only be accessed on a Thursday. It's just such a great example of how technology can drive our behaviour for positive benefit, as opposed to dating apps that can drive compulsive and addictive behaviour. I'm left wondering, though, how do we ensure technology is a force for good in the world if investors want a quick return and founders think that leadership's fluffy? Is it all down to us as the consumers? What do you think? What decisions can you make that are a force for good in the world? And how might your leadership be impacting the world without you realising it? That's it for this week. You've been listening to Innovating Humanity, the official podcast for Birmingham Tech Week. I'm Jude Jennison, host of the podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I hope you've been as inspired by this week's guest as I have. If you'd like to know more about how I help leaders and teams be more human in a world of technology, you may be surprised to discover I do it by working in a field with a herd of horses. Sound crazy? All innovation's crazy in the beginning. So if you like to think outside of the box and get rapid results, you can find out more at www.judejennison.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the exciting technology scene in Birmingham, hop onto the Birmingham Tech website at www.birminghamtechweek.com. Until next time, that's it from me, Jude Jennison, the official podcast partner for Birmingham Tech. <laughs>